We've been talking about some very difficult subjects. We've been talking about how to change. Now, most of us are so pained by that subject that we just ignore it. We just keep it. I mean, don't you? I do. I mean, there's areas in my life that I've wrestled with and struggled with for so long. And, you know, you just get tired thinking about it. You even get tired praying about it. You get tired of talking about it. You get tired of, you know, going to seminars about it or listening to tapes about it or reading books about it or hearing somebody else talk about it. You just, I just can't deal with it. Just get tired. But one of the surefire uh, evidences that you're somehow trying to do something out of your own strength is that you burn out. Uh, you know, when a car burns up, it's because it doesn't have any oil. Well, guess what? People are the same way. When you try to operate out from under the grace and the anointing of God, uh, you fail. You burn up. You burn out. But the good news is that Jesus said, a smoldering flax I will not quench. What that means is, to make a long story short, little little oil lamps that were used in the days of Jesus, they'd fill them with oil and they'd lay a piece of flax in it, and the flax served as a candle wick. They'd light the end of it, and the oil would keep the, the, the fire going at the end of the wick. But sometimes a busy Jewish mother would forget to fill the oil, and the wick would start burning without oil, and it really stinks. I mean, it can run people out of the house. It smells so bad. Well, ha, ha, did you know when you try to operate out from under the grace of God, you stink? All your best efforts just smell terrible, and you're the one that smells it the worst. You know it stinks. And you go, Lord, you know, I don't know what to do about this. I've wrestled with it and wrestled with it. So I want you to keep in mind, uh, before I go into just a, a little brief section here on the subject of Discipline, there's that word again. We've been trying to avoid that word all week. But the fact is, we've been talking about virtue, which is the power of God. We've been talking about vices, which are the, the, the powers of the flesh. And, and the, our deepest desire is for this to become this. To get set free from the, the vices and the vice grip that the vices seem to have on us and to to become men and women of virtue. Virtue meaning not only moral character, but power flowing through us like light flows through a light bulb. That uh, we, we talk about that being a light. Well, no, actually that's the bulb. The light coming through it is from another source, but it's plugged into that source. Uh, but the light has to be designed, the bulb has to be designed in such a way to accommodate the power that flows through it. And uh, this is why there is an emptying that takes place in us before there can be a filling. You know, our forefathers, our, our Pentecostal forefathers knew that. This, was the, this is the original meaning of tarrying to receive the Holy Ghost. Now that got perverted over the years and people started thinking they had to wait for 35 years to receive the Holy Ghost. You know, it's a little late. By the time they receive it, it's time to go home. It doesn't really matter anymore, you know. That's not what we, what, what tarrying originally meant. It originally meant waiting before the Lord uh, and examining your heart and asking the Holy Spirit to deal with you and to empty out anything that is hindering the flow of the true power of God. And it was a very wise thing. It was a very biblical thing to do. But it degenerated over the years into kind of a legalism where people waited and waited and waited not knowing what they were waiting for. But you see, regardless of the validity of supernatural manifestations of God that come upon our lives, and we need those. Lord, I talked on the radio today about a very meaningful supernatural encounter that I had with the Lord where I had gotten stuck in an area of my life right before we married. And it was very important that I get unstuck because it had a lot to do with whether I was going to be able to really serve her and love her, and be there for her. It had to do with uh, unfinished business in me. I had done all I knew to do. I'd read all the right books. I'd listened to all the right tapes. I'd prayed all the right prayers. You know, I'd gotten prayer. I'd had people pray for me, and, you know, I'd done everything I knew to do, and I, the Bible says, having done all, 
stand. So I was standing. And I won't tell the story again tonight because it takes too long, but the power of God came in such an unexpected and inconvenient and embarrassing way. And I'm really glad it, it, it did. I'm really glad he did. I mean, sometimes there are zaps. And I don't want in any way, you know, we some of you who stuck with us through this whole weekend, uh, I don't want you to, to, to leave here thinking ever that we are in any way uh, a negative about all the great things the Holy Spirit does down through history and in our present day. We need those supernatural manifestations. And God gives them, I like the way Jerry says it, he gives them kind of the jump start us and to, 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 to get us moving again in the right direction. But once that grace has been given, we are to cooperate with it in what the Bible calls and church historians call the disciplines. And they're not bad. They're wonderful. They're great gifts. Discipline is actually the root of virtue. You want power flowing in your life? Then there's some things the Lord says, listen, if you, I want you to cooperate with me. I want you to do these things. So what are the disciplines? Well, if I gave you a list of them, you'd go home and, and write them down and make a formula out of it. Uh, and I don't want you to do that because not all the disciplines are going to be for you that are for me. There's areas in my life that need some discipline that maybe your, uh, your life doesn't need. If you start trying to do what I'm doing, for you it would just be bondage and legalism. But for me it would be grace and freedom. Does that make sense? But, but just a few of the disciplines that we, we talk about. Uh, of course, here's the basic ones. You've heard all this stuff before. You think I'm going to tell you something grueling that you've never heard of before. How about this? Prayer. Bible study. Fasting. Here's one we don't even think of. Solitude. Quietness. You know what the Hebrew word for fasting means? Nothing goes in. Nothing comes out. So fasting has as much to do with what doesn't, what, what you don't say as it does with what you don't eat. It has to do with quieting your heart, quieting your spirit. But how many of you know that if you had, you know, you could fast, you, you know, you could, that's no big deal, but to be quiet for one day would maybe blow your head off. It's hard for me, you know. Statistically, men speak 25,000 words a day and women speak 50,000. Well, it's backwards at our house. People, you know, I'm always trying to tell somebody something. Whether they want to hear it or not. One of our kids came in to ask Mary something one day and she said, I don't know, ask Clay. And he said, I don't want to know that much about it. But, but yesterday I told you that, that discipline, you're not to think of the disciplines as some kind of legalistic means of talking God into liking you. Fasting, for instance, is not a hunger strike, so God will pay attention. It's not a political ploy. It's not holding your breath till you turn blue, so God will do what you want. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is basically saying to God, you know what? I need you so much, and I, I want to be alone with you so bad I would rather be with you than have my necessary food. I mean, food to me is secondary to this. See? And so, uh, uh, and we can't do an individual teaching on all this, but let me just give you a little bit of a review because uh, a few of you weren't here last night. Discipline is uh, the tool for building character. Discipline is the, I like what Joseph Piper calls it, selfless self-preservation. Discipline is selfless self-preservation. Now, we know what athletic disciplines are. We, we know what military disciplines are. How many of you guys and girls who play athletics are very grateful in the middle of the last moments of the ball game when your muscles are screaming for oxygen, all of a sudden that coach that you hated Monday through Friday is your best friend? 
Thank God for that guy you wanted to kill. One more sprint, one more lap, one more push-up. You hate his guts until the ball game, and right in the middle of the worst moment, you're very grateful for that extra push. Paul likens the Christian life more than any other analogy he uses. He uses military training and athletic training. And he, listen to some of the things he says here. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Exercise yourself in godliness. Exercise yourself in godliness. The implication here is that if you want to live godly, you have to do some things that will help train your body to get used to being godly. Then he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 through 27, Everyone who competes in the, in the games does so uh, by going into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't fade, or, or they do it to get a crown that will fade, but we do it to get a crown that will never fade. Therefore, I do not run like one who is aimless, and I do not fight like one who is just shadow boxing. In other words, I know exactly what I'm doing, I have an aim, and I go after it. And then he says, I make my body my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might become disqualified from winning the prize. Now, how many of you have ever read that verse and it scared you? You thought Paul was suggesting that you could lose your soul if you don't do certain things. That's not what that verse means. Did you hear what I just said? Write that down on the shirt of the person in front of you so you'll all remember it. Paul is not saying that if he doesn't beat his body and beat it under control that he could lose his soul. Down through church history, there were many misguided people, and still today, who think that the way to stay right with God is by not eating, not doing, any, not, not doing anything. If it's fun, it's probably of the devil. That's the attitude, you know. Well, the fact is, folks, God is the one who invented pleasure. The devil never could come up with one pleasure. All he can do is take the pleasures God created and twist them to turn them into addictions. God is the one who thought up food. God is the one who thought up sexuality. God is the one who thought up recreation. God is the one who thought up fun. He is the original source of all those good things. So you're not going to get godly by walking around being dark and dreary and, and gloomy. You ever seen the guys on the lid of the... Uh, a Dutch Masters cigar box. You know, they're all dressed in black, the Dutch Masters. You know, they all look like this. And I got a friend of mine who's got that picture hanging in his office, and the caption under it says, We are smiling. <laughs> well, that's the picture some people have of holiness. They think that's holiness. Well, that's not, that's not godliness. That's not holiness. What Paul is saying here is, I keep my body my slave. I don't become my body's slave. I keep my body under, and I make it behave me. I don't make, I don't behave it. See, I make it behave me. Lest after I have preached the gospel to others, I myself end up not winning the prize. Now, what is the prize? It's not salvation. Salvation is not a prize you can win. It's a gift of mercy. Right? So he's obviously not talking about being a castaway in the sense of, of I'll tell you, the, the Greek word he uses there is a word used for a, a, a pen, a, a pen, you know, a quill pen or, or a stylus that they used in those days to write on papyrus that has lost its point and is no longer able to be used and gets put in a drawer somewhere until it can possibly get repaired. And the idea here is I've lost my cutting edge. I've lost my ability to get the point across. And so undisciplined living causes us to lose our ability to be pointed, to be focused, to get across what we're trying to communicate by our life. Our life becomes sluggish and overrun by our, our emotions. Now, I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to start meddling here in just, just a minute. Uh, so bear with me. It's, it's, I'm going to try to behave myself and get through this best I can. But discipline in the scriptures, when you start doing a word study on discipline, uh, it, it can be a pretty frightening thing. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21 and 20 through 23. Listen to this. 
the way of a man, the ways of a man are before the Lord, and the Lord observes all his goings. His own iniquities shall take hold of him. The wicked one shall be bound by the cords of his own sin, and he shall die for lack of discipline. Here we're talking about a man whose emotions are so out of control that they lead him by his appetite right off into destruction. Now, this is a difficult part of the subject. Now, we're going to get through this as quickly as possible, okay? But Mary and I, we deal a lot with mental illness. We deal a lot with people who are, who are in deep mental and emotional distress. And you know what I've noticed after 15 years or so or 20 years or so of ministering to people? There are a lot of people who are in mental illness simply from lack of discipline. Are you, are you listening to me? We hate this. Americans hate this subject. If I was sitting out there where you are right now, I'd be going, get this over with, man. I don't want to hear this. I want to let's go get a pizza. But the fact is, folks, when you have someone who is who is literally they're mentally ill, they're cracking up, they can't control their emotions, and you you dig back and you try to find the great trauma in their life that is so often accompanying these kinds of debilitating mental breakdowns, and you can't find one, and you you come to the conclusion you can't find it because it ain't there. There ain't no trauma. You know what the biggest trauma is? They don't get their way. They have no capacity to put off gratification. And guess what? The older they get, the more gratification seems to elude them. Until finally, somewhere in their mid-30s or 40s, they start cracking. They're angry. They're bitter. They're enraged. And you, you see in their face the same contortions of the face of an angry little pouting child. And, you know, as much as Mary and I travel, it's really painful to sit in some restaurants. Because we were sitting in a restaurant, I don't remember where, but I tried to push it out of my mind. But Mary, Mary said, uh, I noticed she was kind of paying attention to the conversation across from us. It was kind of hard to ignore. She said, you know, you ever wonder where some of these adults come from who are so mentally sick and you wonder where they got their start? Here it is, right here. And over here next to us was uh, a, a father and a mother and a, a four, three or four-year-old and a, about an eight or nine-year-old boy, boys. Now, now the, the little guy was giving the waiter trouble, major trouble. I mean, he was jumping up, running around the waiter, trying to trip him, all kind of crazy stuff. I'm not exaggerating. I'm clear. I'm not exaggerating. This was after they had prayed, y'all. Yeah, they, they had prayed over the food, okay? This is the worst part. This, this is not a bunch of heathen idiots, okay? This is not a bunch of crazy people who do dope between uh, the first and second courses of the meal. These are Christians, okay? And here's the conversation between the boy and the father. The father says, well, son, I'm really sorry the game went so bad. Shut up, Dad. There's a well-raised group of children, I can tell. Now, get this. The father says, what's causing you to feel hostile toward daddy? I told Mary, and I wanted to say it loud, but she kicked me under the table. I said, same thing that's making Clay feel hostile toward daddy. <laughs> what a jughead. You shouldn't feel that way toward dad. This kid, I mean, if he's an axe murderer, who can blame him? I mean, some kids, it's absolutely wrong for some kids to go to prison without their parents accompanying them. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me the number, when I pastored, the, the people that we had in our congregations with three-year-olds, they couldn't control. Because they wouldn't control them. And how weary members of our church would be. They would call me and they would say, 
could you please tell them if they're going to come to home prayer group tonight to find a babysitter? And I would say, no. Get in their face and tell them to learn to control their children or stay home. I'm not pastoring anymore. (laughs) Please don't make mommy have to tell you again, darling. Please. Ketchup everywhere. Waitresses begging hoping they leave, just please leave. We'll pay you to leave, okay? (laughs) We'll tip you if you leave quickly. We we laugh about it. I'm telling you folks, the Bible doesn't laugh about it. He that spares the rod hates his child. It doesn't say spare the rod, spoil the child. And I want you to understand, I know that we are living in a culture where there is really... Stupid misinterpretations of Scripture. I, I, I ministered to a young man a few weeks ago whose father would beat him with a stick, literally a stick, and quote Scripture with every stroke until uh, one day, finally, his mother broke in and stopped it and took the boy to the hospital and, and pressed charges against her husband. Finally, she woke up. I mean, I know all about those kinds of ridiculous extremes, but I want to tell you, with all the danger of child uh, and the real child abuses, that we do have to deal with in our culture. I don't think it takes a genius to look at our culture to, to see that the, the problem is not in abuse as much as it is in incredible lack of discipline. We do not know how to form the character of our children. And I'm telling you, folks, you don't believe in original sin, you've never had children. Did you teach that little cute thing to do what he just did to his sister? No, he learned it on his own. It's somehow in him. He knows how to do it. And the Bible says that if we do not bring discipline to our children in the formative years, they will suffer desperately for it later. Well, we know that now, don't we? Amazed at the number of people. Listen. You can't, there is no healing prayer for being a brat. And when you're a, you're a, a four-year-old brat, it might be kind of cute for a while, but when you're a 40-year-old brat, it's not cute anymore, it's not funny anymore, and there are women sitting maybe in this room right now who know painfully what I'm talking about because you're married to a 40-year-old brat. He can't quit drinking, he can't quit doing dope, he won't quit. And he's got all the whiny excuses in the world. And you pray for him and other people pray for him and prayer and prayer and prayer. And you think, how come prayer doesn't work? Because there's some things prayer was not designed to deal with. And a self-willed, hard heart that is set in cement early in a person's life is only going to be changed when that person reaches a point of desperation where they cry out to God and ask for the grace to change and then begin to do some things that will flesh out the change they cried out for in their heart. We don't want to hear this. I like 12-step programs. I believe in 12-step programs. I believe in therapy. I believe in counseling. But I told you a few nights ago, not for 20 years, talking about the same stuff, trying to get in touch with your anger. How many years are you going to work on trying to get in touch with your anger? You're in touch with it. Everybody around you knows you're in touch with it. It bleeds through everything you do and say. When when are you going to change? Well, Jesus laid out some very strenuous, words for us, and in just a little while we're going to look at some of those words, but before we do, let me just, let me just read to you here uh, one more word concerning 
discipline. Discipline has to do with... Uh, listen, let me, let me just tell you this. Nobody was more undisciplined in their emotions than I was. My mood was reality. That's a terrible way to live. What I was feeling was what was. Now, there are people sitting here maybe tonight in this room. You've been a Christian for a long time. But your moods control you. Woe to the marriage that has a, a member in it that is like this. Now, my wife usually goes after this subject pretty hard uh, because it is almost taught to women in our culture that this is the way you communicate to your husband that things are not good. Uh, the long silences and so forth. But it's manipulation. And it cannot be uh, a part of a healthy marriage. But sometimes maybe, I always try to bring the balance to that by saying maybe a woman has tried to say for years what she's trying to get across and she's given up trying to talk anymore because she's talking to a 12-year-old in a 40-year-old body who doesn't want to grow up and doesn't want to change. All I'm trying to say to us tonight, folks, is with all the things we've been talking about concerning gifts of the Spirit, concerning the healing prayers and so forth, and not in this conference, but in other conferences, many of you have been there and you've heard us teach on healing wounded child issues and getting to the root problems, as valid and as important as all of that is, and it certainly has its place, and we need not ever ignore that. Once all that has been done, then what? Once the childhood issues have been ministered to, and the prayers have been prayed, and the history has been looked at from every angle, and you've done all you can do to set that right, then what? Well, sometime in our walk with God, there has to begin a choice-making process where we put one foot in front of the other one and, and, and literally flesh out what we have been hearing. We begin to let our body and our emotions so, uh, line up with what we've been believing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 and 14 says, Everyone who is on milk is inexperienced in practicing the word of righteousness. He's a baby. Well, how many of you are very grateful the Bible makes a place for being a baby? I am very thankful. There's a biblical place for being a baby. Babies have to be fed. Babies have to be cleaned up pretty regularly. They make lots of messes that they're not really in control of. They have to be controlled by someone wiser and older. They have to be helped into becoming uh, little toddlers. Then they start walking on their own. But the whole spiritual growth that the New Testament talks about is pictured in our own natural growth from, from babyhood to childhood, childhood to young adulthood. And then he goes on to say here, but strong meat belongs to those who have come to some maturity, who by habitual discipline, one translation says, by habitual discipline have trained their emotions and learned to discern good from evil. Now, what did that verse tell you? That verse told you that it is possible to make certain decisions in your spiritual life that cause your emotions to come under control and that as your emotions are brought under control, you will begin to be able to discern good from evil. You'll be able to understand and look through things that used to overwhelm you. You'll be, you know, you say every time you get around your father, he makes you feel just like you did when you were 10 years old and you leave feeling worse than you did when you came and you've decided that you just can't get around your dad and on the way home from visiting your parents, you, you're tempted to get drunk again. You know, you just, did you know you can train your emotions so that you do not have to react like you did when you were a 17 year old kid? You do not have to continue to feel that way. You don't have to continue to react that way. Some, how many of you married couples here, don't raise your hand. How many of you married couples here can tell story after story uh, 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 of struggles in your marriage where for some reason that you hadn't quite been able to put your finger on yet, 
you can say the wrong thing and not even know you did it, and boom, your spouse is gone into another mindset. And they act out of a hurt little teenager or a hurt little boy. And, and you don't know exactly what you said, and, and you can't get them to open up, and you can't get them to communicate. And I want to tell you something. Are you listening to me, folks? People in that kind of marriage are destined for destruction in, in their emotions if they don't get a handle on that. Just kind of go back into your little 12-year-old emotions or go back into your little 4-year-old emotions and live out of that as if that was the truth, as if that is your true center. See? And, and you see, the most difficult thing about teaching this kind of subject to a generation of people who are as undisciplined as our generation has become is it takes a certain amount of discipline to listen to teaching on discipline. So guess what, folks? The harder it is to hear this tonight, the easier it is to find out maybe where we are. The harder it is to sit through this tonight, the maybe the clearer it is as to why you are not making any progress in your marriage or in your job or in your Christian walk or wherever it is that you're stuck. God, grant us the power. You know, we need to stop and pray right now. I just feel like we need to pray right now. This is not a dismissal prayer. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but let's ask the Holy Spirit into this. Father, your word says that a man who has no discipline, who is controlled by his appetites and controlled by his impulses, can die from it. That it's actually possible to die from it. Lord, we know that's true in our culture. We know it's true, Father. And Father, we are so devoid of proper teaching on this subject that we don't even have the strength to hear it when it is taught. It's very hard to hear and it's very hard to, to admit that we desperately need to hear it and, and that we don't want to hear it. But Father, we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would come, that we would learn tonight that we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about uh, some rule of law that we put ourselves under because we're so without uh, uh, character that we have to be told what to do by some law. But the Spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death, but the disciplines are the manifestations of that spirit of life working through our flesh, working through our bodies and our emotions in order to tell, to deliver us from vice and, and bring us into virtue. And we thank you, Lord, for that grace tonight. And all the people said, Amen. If you really want to go on with God and you're stuck, If you'll ask the Holy Spirit and really mean it, Lord, if there's any area in anything in my life that I'm not doing that I could begin to do different, you're not doing things to win God's approval, okay? Can I make that statement enough? I'm not telling you now, if you'll just start doing the right things, God will bless you and God will love you. God loves you already. That's why you're feeling the pressure to change. It's His love for you that is bringing the pressure. Nowhere in the Bible do we find it a prescription to hang in there and try a little harder, to, to grit our teeth and, and just make do with the best that we can give. Man's answer is to try, and God's answer is to trust. Rather than to rely upon him and his strength and his power, so often we as Christians are more like the world and try to strive on our own. Faith alone opens the door of our soul to the divine lover who impregnates us with his own life. This is what we've been calling all week union with Christ. If you're a Christian and you belong to Jesus Christ, you've accepted him into your life and you are one with him. You abide in him. The Sermon on the Mount describes that life, the fruits of faith, 
virtuous living. And that's what we've been talking about, right? The virtues. Christ does not bring us to the law. The law brings us to Christ. He is the fulfillment of the written law. If you want scripture for that, that's Matthew 5:17 through 20. He doesn't do away with the law. He doesn't even liberalize the law. He tightens it up. Remember we talked about that the commandment not to murder, he says, don't even hate. And the commandment not to commit adultery, don't even lust. So what does he do with the law? He makes it even stricter. Oswald Chambers says this, to preach the Sermon on the Mount apart from the cross is to preach an impossibility. Let's read them and see why. Verse 1 says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it goes on. The Sermon on the Mount not only comes from Jesus, he spoke them, but these words lead us to Jesus. He alone can fulfill the truth spoken here in us if we let him. We alone cannot do them. Have you ever thought about mercy or mourning or meekness being a virtue that you would like to attain to? But what the Beatitudes are, folks, are the virtues of the Christian life as given to us through Jesus Christ. Not as the world has given what virtues are, but as our Lord has given them to us. The gateway to the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. Now, what is a Beatitude? What does this word, blessed, mean? What is blessedness? Blessedness is what you want. Whether you do it by the right way or the wrong way, that's what you're striving for all the time. In fact, it's unfortunate that in some translations, they will translate this word, Happy. Yes. Happy are you this. Happy are you that. It's a total missing of the point. That's right. Happiness, number one, is a subjective feeling. Blessedness is an objective reality. Feeling is what happiness is based on. Blessedness is based on fact. Number two, happiness is a temporary state. Blessedness, on the other hand, is a permanent state. And number three, happiness is dependent on chance, fortune, or what we would call as Christian circumstances. They're dependent on happenings. But blessedness is dependent on God's grace and our choice. Now that sets happiness and blessedness way apart. But there's one other ingredient that blessedness has that happiness doesn't. And you're not going to like this either. It's suffering. Suffering is what separates happiness from blessedness. There is no suffering in happiness, but there most certainly is suffering in blessedness. This is another of the great paradoxes in Christianity. It shocks and astonishes us that our pain could possibly be called blessed. 
Look at the life of Job, for instance. He isn't happy in his sufferings, but he is blessed even though he doesn't know it because he is learning wisdom and he's coming closer to God. He's coming closer to his true good. He's coming closer to his true blessedness. Do you remember when I told you, uh, I think it was last night, about a time in my life when the, the pressure on me was so great that one afternoon I went out on the back steps and I looked up to God and I said, I can't take this anymore. Please cause this pressure to stop. Remember that? And it lifted. I've never had a prayer answered so quick. It, it, the, I'm, and it was all within me. The pressure was in me. There were events going on in my life that were outwardly pressuring me, but my inner, my emotions, my insides were in turmoil. I was struggling and battling and, and all within. The minute I prayed that prayer, it stopped. I had a pretty good week. By the end of the week, I was starving for that pressure to come back. It's not the pressure itself I missed. It was the awareness that that pressure was the hand of a holy God on my life squeezing up into consciousness the things in me that were destructive to my relationship to Him. And I realized then that my, my hunger for Him was greater than my hunger for fleshly peace. That's this blessedness that Mary's taught. Blessed are they who mourn. When I asked the Holy Spirit, I said, Lord, please come back. I, I was bathed in my own tears. I, I worshiped the Lord with my tears. They were painful tears, but they were tears knowing this is necessary. And there, a courage was formed in me to go further. And the Holy Spirit said to me, do you want to go further? And I said, yes, I want to go further. I don't want to stay here anymore. If it takes pain, then so be it. The pain is not the issue. Pain by itself, Mary's not saying pain by itself has virtue. If that was true, the whole world would be virtuous. But when pain is a necessary result of choosing what's right, then that pain is virtuous. It's it becomes redemptive suffering. That's redemptive suffering. We don't attain to blessedness because we don't know where to look for it. And the only place to find it is in Jesus. And the definition of how to get into a blessed life is given right here in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes give us the map to show us where we seek fullness of life, where we seek blessedness. It is the greatest of all treasure maps to the greatest of all treasures, and it's free, a gift. What else was free and a gift to us from Christ? Our salvation. So is our life lived in virtuous living. We have to live out of the union with our Savior and let that be fleshed out in our daily life. And this is the key right here. Are you poor in spirit? Are you merciful? Do you mourn? Are you a peacemaker? Are you pure in heart? How do you get there? What is that all about? Each of the Beatitudes is an outrageous paradox. There is a staggering contrast between appearance and reality. They are, they're part of the gospel and they're part of the good news. But we so often don't even look at them or don't dare talk about them too much because if we do, we try to conform them into our image rather than look at them and see Christ and be conformed in His image. And if we take the Beatitudes and try to shape them and make them acceptable, we take out the Christ in them. We take out the power in them. You know what I was taught about this in, in theology when I was in college? <clears throat> I was actually taught the Beatitudes are ideals that Jesus never intended us to live. He was simply showing us what the millennium would be like. Now you talk about hyper-dispensationalistic Attempts to avoid God. 
stick everything in the past and stick everything in the future. That, all you got to do now is just sit on a pew and wait for the rapture. See? It's quite obvious Jesus was not teaching this simply to say, hey, guess what? Here's a reality, but you can't have it. Well, the whole, the whole tenor of the New Testament says the opposite. That's right. When you see the Beatitudes and you see the writings in the, the, the New Testament writers, Paul just amplifies all of these things, and he says them as if he expects us to, to do them. Each beatitude is connected with and implies every other one. You can't separate one from the other. It's like the tip of the iceberg is the words that Jesus spoke, but the interconnectedness between what he did speak is the underground workings of an iceberg. And if you keep that in mind as we go on, it will help you to understand what a wonderful journey it is to learn self-discipline, to be able to come to the place of truly attaining to virtuous living. What I'd like to do is to take the Beatitudes as they're listed and contrast them up against what Clay gave you the list of last night, the seven deadly sins. And let you just see what Christ has to say over against these seven deadly sins. Now, you won't find the seven deadly sins or the vices all together in Scripture in a nice little package like the Beatitudes are. Even the Beatitudes over in, um, I believe it's uh, Mark, Luke, uh, one of the other Gospels. They're not as clearly defined as these, but the thing is the heart of Christ is here. And the answers to the most deadliest sins that haunt us and plague us and keep us from living virtuously are answered right here. Let me just go down the list for you. The poor in spirit is the gift of humility. And it is set over against pride, which is the first and foundational sin. Humility is selflessness while pride is selfish self-assertion. Those who mourn are set over against the envious, envy. Envy resents another's blessedness, while those who mourn share another's blessedness. The meek are set over against anger. Anger wills harm and destruction, but the meek refuse to harm. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are set over against sloth, the slothful. They refuse to exert the will toward the good, while those who hunger and thirst for righteousness do that very thing. They do exert the will toward the good. The merciful are set over against greed, giving over against getting. Where greed is the reach to grab and keep the world's goods for oneself, mercy is the reach to give and share the world's goods with others. The pure in heart is set over against lust. Lust dissipates and divides the soul into pieces where purity centers and unifies the soul in Christ. The peacemakers, along with the meek, is set over against anger. The peacemakers prevent destruction. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are set over against gluttony. Courage set over against self-indulgence. A glutton consumes an inordinate amount of worldly goods where those who are being persecuted are being deprived of even the basic necessities. Do you see how Christ has a shining, glorious, living answer that stands in the face of the most deadly sins and vices that we are tied to in our fallen nature. 
And can you see how the undisciplined person is in the grip of all these things? Envy. I, I, I was sitting this morning. Uh, there was a lady. Uh, I was. It was very early. I was. I was. I won't say where I was, but I was sitting in a certain restaurant this morning, and there was a lady there who was so angry. I mean, the waitress could do nothing right. And and you could see this woman's face. And, and, and her face had the pout of a little child. It was frightening to me. And in, in her conversation with her companion, when she wasn't angry, she was envying. She was talking about people who have this and people who do that and people who who got ahead of her in the job and, and, and she was angry at them and envying them. And you could, there were so many manifestations of all these terrible things and they were all connected. You, you couldn't pull one out without pulling three more connected to it. It was all tangled together. And I saw in her face an anger toward this waitress that was almost murderous. She didn't bring her coffee quick enough. There's gluttony. Impatience. Envy. And the reason I recognize this woman so well is because she could have passed for my twin sister. I saw all of those attitudes in me at one time. And I'm aware of them to this day, periodically. And there was a time in my life, folks, I've told you this every night, when I was so preoccupied with the sexual brokenness in me that I honestly thought, God, if you just fix this, you'd have a perfect one. Little did I know that the Lord was not nearly... He was concerned about the sexual brokenness, obviously. Fornicators won't have their part in heaven. Pretty serious subject. But he was much deeply more concerned about those aspects of sin in us that we take as socially acceptable. We say somebody's envious. Well, they kind of envious. Envy is a terrible sin. I've seen people <laughs> repenting of envy. And I promise you, you would have thought they were demon-possessed. As the anger and rage came hissing out of them. There's no demon there. It's the anger of a human spirit hating another for getting blessed in an area that they've not been blessed in yet. And I told you last night, one of the terrible things about envy, not only do I want what you've got, I want you not to have it. So envy leads right into what? Murder. When you've got envy in your heart, you're this close to murder. Well, isn't that, Clay, isn't that under the blood? Not if you pulled it out from under the blood doing it. You can't just say, it's under the blood. I'm doing it, but it's under the blood. <laughs> no. Legally, you belong to Jesus. I'm not telling you, you keep doing these things you don't even know you're doing. You're going to wake up and find out you're not even saved. Salvate, you, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is if you belong to Jesus, there should be an ever-increasing sensitivity in your heart to, to the things that you used to think were no big deal. I, I see things I used to do ten years ago and I think, McQueen, were you even a Christian? And you know what? I hope ten years from now, I'll look at me now and think, you better be glad you're saved by grace. You know what I'm saying? I hope so too. <laughs> Stick to your script. Now. Do you, you understand what we're trying to say? The, the, I thank God for the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit on us that is obviously God coming down on us. We need that. But when the glory cloud is lifted and the world is looking for us to come down from the mountain to the demon-possessed valley, will we still walk with the glory on us even though it's not visible and even though it's not tangible? Will we still manifest the glory of Christ in our daily behavior? You know, you can only be humble before God 
to the degree that you're humble before man. You can only be humble before God to the degree that you're humble before man. How do you treat people will tell a lot as to whether you're really humble before God or not. How much you love the person in front of you, John says, if you love the person you can see, then maybe you can love the God you can't see. But if you don't love the person you can see, how can you possibly love the God you can't see? So what we're trying to say, folks, is if it ain't being fleshed out in your real life, what kind of Christianity is it? Let's let the Holy Spirit manifest these things through our real bodies and our emotions and our conversation, our relationships, and our life. The Beatitudes summarize the blessedness of virtue, and the seven deadly sins summarize the misery of vice. Practicing the presence of Jesus, we talked about that last night, summarizes the disciplines. It's the highest and greatest of all disciplines that leads to the deeper and more what I call growing pains of the other disciplines. Incarnation summarizes the two sides of reality, both God's part, which is the work of the cross, justification by the blood of Christ, and our part and God's, which is the work of sanctification, which is fleshing out the Christ life through our bodies. Faith and works go together. In other words, faith works. Jesus Christ lives in me, and I live out of that union with him by the power of the Holy Spirit unto virtuous living. Moses summarized it all with two simple words. Choose life. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the man who spoke with God face to face. Moses spoke these words in his last sermon to God's chosen people just before he was about to die and Israel was about to enter the promised land. If we as Christians are really and truly standing at the edge of a cliff, our only hope to live is to go backwards, even back to what Moses said. God says through his servant Moses, we must choose life on four different levels. The first level is to our spirit. In other words, we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts, and it's salvation to our spirit. The first and highest way of choosing life is to ask Jesus to come and be Lord and Savior of your heart. That's health for your spirit. That's how you choose life for your spirit. But that's not all. The second part where we're to choose life in is for our soul. And the way we choose life for our soul is to choose the life of virtue. It's to choose the way of virtuous living. That is health for your soul. Choosing life for your soul. Amen. This third area is even closer to home. Choosing life for our bodies, for our physical life. When we choose life for our physical bodies, we choose the life of discipline. This is the bridge, folks, from the vices to the virtues, from the deadly sins to the beatitudes, from being caught and entangled by your fallen nature to being able to live set free by the spirit of life, the spirit that is the Holy Spirit that gives freedom. But the freedom comes from obedience. The fourth area that we're to choose life for is for one another, for our churches, for our society, for our culture, for our generation, for the world. And in this, we choose the life of love. Love must be sincere. We have to hate what is evil, cling to what is good, and we cannot be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. 
Where do we start with that? We go back to the first beatitude. Poverty of spirit. Humility. And that's where we begin, folks. You have power to live. You have power to choose. You have power to change. In Jesus' name.